Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Psalm 23 as we continue our series on the Psalms. We turn now to a psalm which is of great comfort for many in times of difficulty, no doubt. This is a psalm people turn to on the deathbed and in the hospital room. Uh, but, but this psalm is for all of life and not just the hard times. And there's good in, a, good in it for us uh, because the, the Savior Jesus is revealed to us as the good shepherd through it. Uh, spiritual confidence grows in the soil of the gospel. Spiritual confidence grows in the soil of the gospel, and you and I need to be rooted and grounded in the good news of the gospel if we're going to grow and bear fruit, and if we're going to grow in our confidence in the Lord and that He's for us. And that's what this psalm is about. It's designed to reassure us in our relationship with the Lord. So what does it look like to have this kind of confidence? What does it look like to have Jesus be our good shepherd? What kind of confidence can we have in the face of all the various challenges of life? Now, I don't know all your situations, whether you're moving or planning to move, selling a house or buying a house, looking at new schools, new job, new works, uh, trading out a job. Uh, Whether you're going to see family it's hard to be with, or uh, you're dealing with health problems you never thought you would have, or whatever it is that causes you anxiety, that causes you frustration, that reveals your weakness, whatever it is, uh, God wants you to rest. In the good shepherd who leads you and guides you and loves you, who cares for your soul. And so I want you to consider tonight this psalm. Uh, Some of you, your anxiety is failing. Uh, Failing as a Christian, falling away from the Lord. You fear that. You wonder if you... If you will ruin yourself forever in the future, or some of you may wonder, have you already ruined yourself by the life that you have lived, even as a Christian? You ask yourself, what if if I drift away from Jesus? What if I wander away? Uh, Life, in all these ways and others, can test your belief that God will be as faithful to you that God will be faithful to you in the midst of your unfaithfulness. And this is a psalm about that, too. It's designed to reassure you. So, as you and I prove ourselves to be sheep, let's look at how Jesus proves himself to be a good shepherd who loves and cares for his sheep. Give your attention now to the reading of Psalm 23. A psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. 
For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade because the breath of the Lord blows on them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. May he write it on our hearts. Consider this psalm tonight as we prove ourselves sheep and Jesus demonstrates that he's a good shepherd. I want you to consider three things with me. I want you to see how he is revealed. I want you to see the humility of the shepherd who cares for us. I want you to see the confidence his care creates in us. And then thirdly, I want you to see the blessings uh, his care guarantees to us. Those three things. In the first place, I want you to consider the humility of the shepherd who cares for us because it's on extraordinarily, uh, extraordinary display here. He makes a startling declaration when he says that the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, which is the Bible's translation of Yahweh or even Jehovah of the Old Testament. Uh, this is the God of the universe, the, the God who speaks and the universe appears, the God who sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and his people are like grasshoppers. The, the mighty one who has no needs, who has no lacks, who has all glory, and it says he humbles himself and takes to himself the title shepherd. He becomes the shepherd of his people. Now, uh, perhaps you know that, that sh- shepherds are, are sort of at the bottom rung in society, even in an agrarian society, in, in, in places like the ancient Near East and even today. You know who gets to be the shepherd in a family? It, it's typically the young child, the, the last born. That's the kid you send out in the field to chase sheep all over the mountainside. Uh, this is not a pleasant task. You live and and sleep with the sheep 24 hours a day. Um, Summer, winter, rain or storm. It's it's in many ways a filthy, difficult job to nurture, to provide food, to protect from danger sheep. As Jim Boyce says, who in his right mind would choose to be a shepherd. It's a difficult job. Joshua, when he was real young one time, said, is what God did like us becoming a mosquito? And I said, what? And he said, never mind. And I said, wait, are you talking about the incarnation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, Joshua, it's that and much more. God becoming one of us. Because this passage leads you to the New Testament where Jesus declares that he is, in John 10, he is the good shepherd. God becomes man to be the shepherd of his people. It's, as C.S. Lewis says, it would be like God becoming an ant or like one of us becoming an ant. It's, it's humbling. It's, it's an incredible condescending act of grace and love that he would do this 
for us. And what does the shepherd do for his sheep? He lays down his life for the sheep. He gives of himself for their well-being. That is what he does. Some of you recall years ago now the uh, assault at Virginia Tech University when a gunman uh, began to open fire on university students. World Magazine described the scene in one of the rooms where one of the students dove against a wall to get out of the way of the flying bullets. And a student from Indonesia, diving a split second later, landed on top of him. Then the murderer in that classroom went around the room shooting people and shot the student on top, later coming back to put five more bullets into that student. But the one on the bottom underneath survived, saved by the death of another. And that is what Jesus did for us, except he didn't do it trying to save himself. He did it trying to save us and succeeding. This is what the Bible says, that Jesus lays down his life for the sheep, and so he is our good shepherd. This is who we're describing in the first place. It's a startling declaration of his humility that he would do this for us. And yet, what confidence it's designed to build in you. Notice the second phrase, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Therefore, I shall not Another translation, lack. This is what it's describing when it says want. It's not that he's saying, I'll have no desires. He's not saying, well, the Lord's my shepherd, therefore I'll be a stoic. I won't care about anything. I won't feel anything. I won't need anything. That's not what he's saying. Uh, The idea here is lack. I will lack nothing. I will lack, in fact, no good thing that he deems both wise and good for me but left to themselves you understand sheep lack everything and so Matthew Henry says I this psalm says I shall be supplied with whatever I need and if I do not have everything I desire I may conclude that it is either not fit or wise for me or it's not good for me or I will have it in due time This is what I may conclude. When I have a desire and it's unfulfilled, I either someday will have it when it's the right time for me, or God is saying to me, it's not good or it's not wise for me. But it can't be the case that he doesn't love me. He's my good shepherd. I think think verse 1 here is the Old Testament way of saying what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn in your Bible, Romans 8 is the high point and the apex of the book of Romans and and the high theology of the love of God in Christ. And at verse 31, Paul says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now how do we know God is for us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? See the implication of that. God having given you his best, his most precious beloved son, the pearl of great value in his eyes. 
He's not holding any other good thing behind his back, keeping it from you. He's not playing a hide-and-seek with you about the good things that you need. This is the implication of Psalm 23, verse 1. If the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack because he loves me. And so this is the confidence that that I might have going forward. Now, what, what... Is it, he says, are these blessings that I will not lack? And he begins to enumerate them, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time. He enumerates at least six. There's probably other ways to enumerate them. But let me highlight six things you will not lack, that you may have confidence God gives to you. Now let me also say this as we go through them. These good things will not all be experienced all at the same time. It's impossible to see how you could be, on the one hand, at the same time, led to a pastor's green and quiet waters while you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death. Okay? This is describing a journey, and one gives way to another. So we won't experience all of these things all at the same time, nor will all of us have them to the same degree, nor will we have them to the same degree uh, over the course of a lifetime. And yet, they are all blessings, though they wait their turn for us, they are all blessings that we have at the hand of the good shepherd who loves and cares for his people. And they ought to create in us, therefore, contentment in our experience and trust in God. So let's, let's enumerate them. What do we have guaranteed to us by the shepherd's care? In the first place, we have rest. In his provision. Notice here at verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That's the language of provision. Good seasonal resting places. There was a phenomenon in that place. As there is even to this day. Where uh, the, the good places to eat. Changed with the seasons. In the winter and spring. When you had lots of rain. You could feed on the green grass. But in the summer and fall, it would dry up and and the shepherd had to look elsewhere for green resting places. Uh, the, the, The shepherd knows where to find them. He knows how to get them to you and get you good food. And more than that, he knows that you need to drink from still waters. Apparently, those who know about these things, as I read them, people who are shepherds and such, uh, if you ever want to look at Philip Keller's book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, uh, he knows more than I on this. Apparently sheep won't drink from a quickly trickling brook. They get skittish. They get nervous and anxious. You have to have quiet waters so that they can drink. Well, he finds them for the sheep. And for you and I, what does all this mean? Well, for some of us, the scramble to fit in can make us frantic or some of us are frantic with the desire to excel we're searching to find our place in life and all of that can really suck the joy out of life some people are anxiously fretting because they think they're the only one looking out for them and so students will say you know if I don't go to every party I'll never have community If I don't make myself fit in, we'll say, I'll never have any friends. 
If I don't spend sleepless nights worrying about my career, then the next 50 years of my career will be lost. This is, this is what we say to ourselves in the dark of night. But is that really true? The psalmist is asking us. Doesn't God provide? Can't we trust him to provide just exactly what we need in the moment that we truly need it? The psalmist's confidence is that Jesus is his good shepherd and he knows what he's doing. We may not have all that we desire, but we have what he wants us to have at this moment. It's interesting, too, that the way that this psalm opens is with rest and not activity. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Uh, it's, It's good to remember that. This is the way that the Christian life begins as well. Resting in Jesus spiritually, uh, not with a frantic effort to do enough good so that God will accept you, but simply relaxing in all the good that Jesus has already done for you and resting your soul on him, letting him work for you instead of working for him. This is the good news of the gospel. And that's where he begins. So we get rest in his provision. But secondly, we get restoration in our desperation. Notice the language here at verse 3. He restores my soul. Uh, In other words, he's describing the experience of having his soul be out of whack, be upside down. There's problems in the soul, he's saying. And what Jesus does is he rescues, he restores. Now again, Philip Keller in his book says... um, describes the experience of a cast sheep. He says that a heavy or fat or long-fleeced sheep will sometimes, having been well-fed, lie down comfortably in some small depression in the ground. Rolling onto its side and stretching out, if its center of gravity shifts, it can end up on its back with its feet in the air. Impossible on its own to right itself. And the danger, of course, is that gases can build up in the body, circulation can be cut off from the legs, and in a few hours the sheep can die. It also exposes the sheep to the danger of outside predators, of course. The only one who can restore that sheep to health is the good shepherd, who must come alongside and turn it upright, and even sometimes relieve the gases. You might find in your case, that you have uh, dug a pit for yourself and you find that you are unable to right yourself. You are Jesus' specialty. He is an expert at helping people who cannot help themselves. When you are weak, he loves to be strong on your behalf. When you are sorrowing, he loves to comfort you. When you have sinned, he loves to be gracious to you, to forgive you, and to set your feet on solid ground. This is what he loves to do. So I would say to you, let him hear the voice of your crying. Oh Lord, restore my soul. I'm trapped in this experience. Whether it's it's gas on the inside spiritually, that's ruining you, or if it's some circumstance on the outside that is destroying you. 
Call out to him. He loves to restore your soul. In the third place, he, he loves to give guidance to you in life. This is what he does. Notice the language, middle of verse 3. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, there's a translation issue going on here. The question is, should we understand him to be saying, he leads me in paths of righteousness, or as the NIV, I think, has it, should, he leads me in straight paths. The word here is right, and um, not unjustly, it could be taken either way, though I think the context actually indicates that he means right paths, straight paths. Uh, he's not lost, and he's not wandering me around aimlessly in life. He guides me in the proper path. Um, in other words here, I think we're looking at the, 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 the good shepherd here, um, not on the one hand like uh, a map maker who just makes a map and hands it to you and says, now just follow these directions. Uh, but, but, but on the other hand, uh, not a good shepherd here who is just um, marching you into obedience. But I think what we have here described is the good shepherd who's like a river rafting guide in the back of the boat, as you meander down some dangerous rapids, he knows those rapids like the back of his hand. And he may have you steer hard to the right, steer hard to the left as you go around rocks and as you go over small waterfalls. And to you, it looks like you're just, you're just going A to B to C to D. You don't know where you're going. What are you, what are you doing with me, Lord? Why are you taking me here? And now there, I don't understand. And yet, if you knew the mind of the guide in the back of the boat, you would understand why. Because he has your best interests in mind and he is leading you on a straight path to take you safely from one place to the next, to get you safely to the end, which is even glory itself. This is what the good shepherd is doing here. He might lead us... uh, One way and then another, and though we are confused, he is not. This is what the psalmist is saying. And why does he do that for us? He does it not for our namesake and not based on our merits, not because I've lived good or I've lived right, and so he's duty-bound to take me to the next good place. He does it for his own name's sake. This is what the psalmist says says for his own sake for the glory of his grace to the praise of the glory of his grace he does all these good things for us and so you get from this good shepherd you get rest in his provision you get restoration in your desperation you get guidance in life with regard to that guidance in life all this may leave the impression that nothing hard will therefore come into my life Should everything just be one bright, sunshiny day? No. Notice the next phrase. He, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says. And so so the next thing he gives you is protection in and through danger, but not the avoidance of it. He doesn't promise you here no trouble, no hardship, no scary situations, but he promises you that he will walk with you through it. Notice the language here. 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. And so we ask the question, Lord, have you led me the wrong way? This, this way doesn't seem right. And as these sheep are led from the seasonal uh, winter lowlands to the summer highlands, they have to go through valleys of large mountains and there could be wild animals lurking ahead behind stones in the path. There could be sudden and unexpected floods that sweep into the valley and cause danger to the sheep. But this shepherd knows what he's doing. And so even though they walk through the valley of the shadow of death, they need not fear evil. Not because there is no evil to fear. The psalmist isn't saying there's, there's really no evil. There's, there's really nothing to be feared. They need not fear Because he is with them through it. That's what he's saying. He is the antidote to our fears. And notice in this darkest hour how the psalm, the language of the psalm transitions. Uh, Up till now it's been he. Uh, uh, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Third person masculine singular. He, 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 he. Now notice in the hour of greatest darkness, the pronoun changes to you. Second person. Uh, it's familiar. It's, 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 it's as though he's saying, now in my moment of greatest need, he is closest to me so that I'm speaking him as a companion in the journey through the valley. You are with me. He says, and your rod and your staff, the the one with which you strike blows at wild animals and the other with which you scoop my neck and pull me back into the fold with both these things. One, you defend me and protect me. The other, you grab hold of me as I wander away because of this, because of who you are. That comforts me. That's what he's saying here because he's constantly vigilant. There's an interesting story told about Jonathan Edwards, the, 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 the famous American theologian and philosopher in the 1700s. Um, after he left his pastorate in Massachusetts, he went out west to western Massachusetts to be a missionary to the Indians. And uh, one of his daughters had a recurring nightmare that she was going to be killed by the Indians. Uh, she saw in her dream an arrow coming out of the darkness and striking her uh, in the chest. And, and Edwards um, tells the comfort that he gave to his daughter in that. And then John Gerster, who was a seminary professor, was reflecting on the advice that Edwards gave to his daughter and mulling that advice over about God's sovereign care and providence he began to reflect on the idea. For, he invited everyone to imagine an arrow coming out of the darkness at you. And he asked us to reflect on this question. Uh, if God had ordained that an arrow should strike me down, what should my attitude to it be? 
If we truly believe that God is the good shepherd, if we truly believe that he provides for us what is best, then if God has ordained from the foundation of the world that an arrow should strike me in my heart for my good, I don't want to miss it when it comes. Because the good shepherd is there and he's leading me, guiding me, and he is my best in mind. And even when I am in danger, I need not fear, for he is with me. And he has promised eternal good to me. Now that's the fourth thing. And the fifth thing you have here, beginning of verse 5, is this. You have abundance. You have abundance in relationship with him. You prepare a table before me. Now the metaphor, many say, changes here. It seems to change from this metaphor of a shepherd to now a host at a banquet. And he says this, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. You might have expected at a banquet in which the Lord God, your shepherd, is at, in presence that you would be called upon to serve him. But here again, it's reversed. He serves you, just as Jesus did for his own disciples when he put that towel on his waist and he washed their feet. Just as Jesus offered the Passover meal to his own disciples, that feast in which he said, I am giving to you at this meal. So he supplies a table for us. So he invites us to be a guest at his table. That's what you have here, friends, in the Lord's Supper. Jesus inviting you to eat and drink at his table and with him. Because he loves you. And he anoints your head with oil. This in, in their, though uh, perhaps we use uh, conditioner <laughs> on our hair to keep it from drying out. They used uh, oil, olive oil and other oils. Uh, he provides here because oil uh, soothes the cracked face. And he provides wine. Wine here in abundance. Uh, the image is of coming into the home and the host offers you wine and instead of pouring you a glass of wine that's partly full or that's mostly full or that's right up to the brim but no more, the host here has rather poured and poured and poured until the wine has gone over the lip and down the cup and it was a way of saying not just welcome, but, but it was a way of saying, all that I have is yours. Be at home here. I, I give to you in abundance, more than you need. That's what the image is here. And so God is saying to you, I am, I am liberal, I am generous, I am open-handed. What's mine is yours. And in the gospel, we know that what belongs to Christ belongs to us because we are, we are united to him. We are co-heirs with him of all things. Oh, would you let that, this table speak that into your heart? God feeds you on the bread of Christ. Uh, he feeds you on the blood of Christ. He delights to do so because he delights to give you all things in abundance. And finally, there's this, and this is the last note at verse 6. He has all these things plus 
confidence in future grace. Confidence and assurance of future gifts. Notice the language, surely goodness and mercy or steadfast love, covenant love and faithfulness. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the language here is is a bit weak in the way that we think of what it means to follow. The idea here isn't that it's sort of back there behind us, trailing along somewhere, but never really catching up. Uh, the, the language here, it's not inappropriate to translate it follow, but the language is stronger than that. Um, we continue to translate it follow because it's in the beloved King James and nobody in translating the Bible has wanted to mess with Psalm 23 because it's so familiar and so well loved. In a lot of ways, that's why. But the, but the, the word here is, is an active word. It's used in other situations to describe, uh, to, to persecute, to, to hunt down, to chase me down and capture me. This is the language here. Goodness and mercy will hunt me down all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I, I preached this years ago at Trinity Grace in, in uh, Rogers. And, and I was mindful just a second ago that somebody came up to me afterwards and they heard a sermon in which the preacher said, you're out with the sheep and the good shepherd is walking with the sheep and, and the sheep begin to stray and he sends after the sheep his two dogs, goodness and mercy. And they hunt you down and bring you home. This is, this is the idea here. All the days of my life, therefore I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is confidence, friend. Not just for today, but for eternity. So don't believe the marquee theology, as many of you heard me say before. That down the street from the church we worshipped at in Fayetteville is another church that, that likes to do marquee theology. Out by the street, they have the sign, and, and in one quip, one phrase, they try to capture your attention. Now listen, marquee theology, unless they're quoting the Bible directly, sometimes you just have to scratch your head with suspicion at, at what's being said. And even sometimes when it's quoting the Bible, it's not quoting it in a way that's very helpful to people who read it. You know, you can pick all kinds of crazy things to, to fling at people as they drive by. Well, on this particular day, the Marquis said, God is as faithful to you as you are to him. That ought to cause a cold shiver to run down your backside. We are all in serious trouble if God is as faithful to us as we are to him because we are so fickle. But he is not like us. Oh, friends, here, goodness and mercy chase us down all our days. Do you have this kind of confidence? Do you have this confidence in future grace and in his abundance and in his protection in trouble and in his provision and in his loving care for you? You can have this in Jesus. It's all found in him. He loved you and he graciously and willingly came to die on the cross for you to forgive you to pursue you to woo you 
to bring you home to himself and to never let you go. This is the good news of the gospel. Four men went up to climb a mountain called the Matterhorn. Two professional guides and two tourists. They ascended the rock together, linked in order. Professional guide, tourist, guide, tourist. Linked together by ropes and clips, the last man lost his footing and his anchor in the rock didn't hold. And he began to swing freely on the rope, hung from the man above, whose anchor also failed. And the two began to swing freely from the man above, whose anchor also failed. But the man at the top's anchor never failed. And so the four climbed. One kept them all safe because he was the lead guide and knew exactly what he was doing. And so with the good shepherd, friends, he has gone before you. He has tied you to himself. And where you fail, he succeeds. Where you are weak, he is strong. And you can rest in him because he's the good shepherd. And he loves you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we bless you for Jesus. We know that we need him. Teach our soul to lean on him, to delight in him, and to know all the good gifts that we have in him. To the praise of the glory of your grace, and for our own soul's sake, we ask it in Jesus' name.